Welcome to episode 65, Strategies for Providing Competent Care to Trans and Non-Binary Adolescents and Young Adult Clients, featuring Kyle Bullock, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. I want to take a moment also to note for our listeners that the terminology to describe transgender people is continually evolving alongside a deeper understanding of the categories of biological sex, gender identity, and gender expression. Use of various lexicon is specific to each individual and his, her, or their self-identification. And in this episode, we use various terms and just want to keep in mind that the terminology is really specific to each individual. Hello, my name is Kyle Bullock. And I'm the manager of LGBTQ services at Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. I've been serving LGBTQ youth for about nine years now. I have done LGBTQ youth development work after school programming. I have um, served LGBTQ youth as an outpatient mental health clinician. I have um, ran a research study on LGBTQ HIV prevention, and now I uh, manage an LGBTQ inpatient unit. Throughout this uh, podcast, I'll be using the acronym TGNC, which means transgender and gender nonconforming. Uh, just is going to help me as I'm um, speaking throughout this hour. Um, I think this podcast is beneficial for any therapist who works with TGNC youth, because even if you don't work in a psychiatric hospital, you will be in a position to advocate for your client to make sure that they are receiving the very best clinical care. And really, who knows, maybe one day you'll be working in a hospital and now you will have the knowledge to best care for TGNC youth. Also, this podcast is adolescent heavy, but I think at its core, um, this is good information for helping TGNC adults in inpatient psychiatric care. This is my second podcast for Clearly Clinical. Uh, my first was on LGBTQ um, adolescent family work, and I'll be referencing that podcast in, um, today. This is not an LGBTQ 101, so if you are just tuning in, and you have no LGBTQ um, clinical experience or training, I suggest you turn in to other, um, tune in rather, to other clearly clinical podcasts before starting this training. All right, so a little about uh, our roadmap for today. I will tell you briefly about Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital. I will then um, share with you some statistics, um, go over the state of mental health and the TGNC community. I will then be talking about implementing best practices. Um, I will tell you about our recommendations for doing this work for um, just about a year now at, in, at Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital, and really kind of end with our successes. So hopefully this will give you um, some tools and tips to make these changes perhaps in your own work environment. So Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital is, like I said before, located in Chicago, Illinois, we serve children and adolescents only, so ages 3 to 17. We um, have an acute uh, inpatient care units, um, uh, and we also have a partial hospital program, which serves young people ages 6 to 17. We have two specialty units. One is called Polaris, which is our LGBTQ inpatient psychiatric unit. We chose the name Polaris because it's the name of our North Star, and for centuries, this star has been guiding people on some type of journey. And I think we um, lay a good foundation for our um, LGBTQ youth who are in psychiatric crisis, who are really looking for guidance on their journey. Um, this whole podcast is really um, sharing, you, sharing with you our best practices that we've discovered doing this work. To our knowledge, and if any of you out there know of an inpatient uh, LGBTQ uh, adolescent unit, please share it with us. But I think we're the only hospital in the country that is doing this type of intentional work. So well, I'm very excited to share with you, um, you know, what we've learned, and hopefully this can help um, other young people out there. Um, we also have a, another specialty program called the Worthy Program. 
This is an inpatient um, track within our hospital for young people who are at risk or are currently being sex trafficked. It is a seven module um, thera therapeutic intervention, um, which um, typically our, one of our social workers will be um, doing with the young person. Um, you know, the modules consist of basic psychoeducation on sex trafficking, all the way to processing the trauma of what it's, uh, what it's been like as a young person being trafficked. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the numbers. So um, every time I, I read through these statistics, whenever I'm doing a training, um, it's just so alarming. Um, TGNC people are really facing an epidemic of sorts. Um, and it's really our job as care providers to understand their, their unique needs and be trained on how to care, um, you know, in an affirming way, in a competent way. Um, so what we know is that from the Trans Lifeline, the National LGBTQ Task Force 2017 survey, is that 88% of TGNC people um, considered ending their own life. And we also, um, I, I have conflicting statistics that um, the same survey says over half of TGNC people have attempted suicide. And another study from the National Transgender Discrimination Survey of 2016 said 40% of TGNC people have attempted suicide, which is staggering. Um, if, you could, if, you, if you apply those numbers to non-trans people or cisgender people, this would be an issue that we would have faced head-on. Um, I'm, I'm confident in saying that, and we would have probably solved these issues, but you know, this is a gender minority group that um, has been misunderstood for such a long time, um, and they face, and they can face, you know, extreme difficulties and many hurdles, um, psychosocial hurdles. So, um, it's just always kind of alarming when I hear those statistics. Um, also, the Human Rights Campaign Healthcare Equality Index uh, back in 2017 um, found that 39% of hospitals had specific policies on how to co um, competently treat transgender patients. 39%, right? 69% um, of those 39% included policies around um, acquiring and using a patient's name and pronoun at admission. So our hospitals are very are, are lacking the basic kind of fundamental um, uh, policies to help protect um, and treat um, our TGNC people. A 2011 Stanford University um, School of Medicine survey uh, or study rather found that five, there was only five hours of LGBTQ training in medical schools across the country. So our medical providers aren't even getting this information. Um, TGNC people are four times more likely to delay medical care because they have to educate their providers. And I don't know about you, but I want my provider to be educated already before they're going to treat me. Um, TGNC people um, suffer higher rates of depression, PTSD, uh, non-suicidal self-injury. And going back to this National Transgender Discrimination Survey of 2016 that showed that 40% of TGNC people attempt suicide, um, it's important to reflect that the national um, suicide attempt rate for the general population is 4.6%. Of TGNC people who attempt suicide, 71% attempt more than once. The majority makes their first attempt before the age of 17. And a third make their first attempt by the age of 13. So these are, you know, these are the patients we see at our hospital at Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital are these young kids who are identified as TGNC, or maybe they're confused about their gender, they're facing some psychosocial stressors around their gender identity, and they attempt suicide. Um, which is very alarming that we, uh, we're still seeing these high uh, 
um, suicide rates in this community. Some social challenges include job discrimination. Um, the National Transgender Discrimination Survey found that 90% of TGNC people face some form of job discrimination. 20% um, work in underground economy. There's housing discrimination and, and housing instability. About 30% face that. 33% face some sort of healthcare discrimination, either being turned away for treatment, they're being harassed, or they're having to teach their healthcare provider. 22% um, are in dire poverty. 30% um, of TGNC folks are homeless. Um, and more than half of trans folks seeking shelter are harassed, and 44% are unable to stay, and more than one-fifth uh, one of TGNC people are sexually assaulted um, when seeking um, shelters or any kind of homeless uh, assistance. And um, we know that about 58 to about 69% of TGNC people face police harassment. So intense psychosocial challenges. Um, however, that's not to say that every single TGNC person will face these, right? We just know that um, that these challenges exist, and if young people face any one of these, if or more of them, um, can create a lot of psychosocial stress. So, a little bit about the state of, me of mental health care. So, we have this awful, awful history of um, t usually white cisgender or non-trans um, older men, you know, are running the Writing the DSM, right? This is back in the day, right? I'm, I'm hoping things have changed by now. But typically that, that um, very privileged group have said that people who are a gender or sexual minority um, have a mental illness, right? So we, they've pathologized identity. Um, homosexuality wasn't removed from the DSM until 1973, not removed... Uh, oh, I mean, I'm sorry, it was declassified in 1973, but not removed until 1987. Currently, we have gender dysphoria in the DSM-5, so a young person can still be labeled as, a, as having a mental disorder. We have conversion therapy still practiced in the United States, even though you know many states have um, outlawed that practice, which, if you're unfamiliar with conversion therapy, it's the non-evidence-based practice of changing one's orientation uh, or gender identity. In fact, what we find is that that practice is extremely harmful and it doesn't work. And it's um, and every major medical and mental health association across the United States, um, you know, says that that pra the practice of conversion therapy is wrong, uh, and what we should be doing is affirming people. Um, with their identities. Um, mental health care uh, and TGNC people, it, it's been underserved. It's been inappropriately served. There's this fear of, will my therapist be transphobic? Do they have this, the skills, the knowledge um, to work with me? Um, sometimes clinicians will focus on a patient's gender identity um, or exaggerate its importance in terms of the presenting problem. So oftentimes, TGNC folks will come into a therapist or a psychiatrist, some mental health provider, and say, hey, uh, I am depressed, um, I, I need some help. The clinician finds out that the patient is trans, and they become fixated on that part. Um, and as we know, depression is just one piece of someone's puzzle, same with their gender identity, is just one piece, right? So we can't just over-focus. Um, sometimes uh, a TGNC person is coming to you because of their identity and their concerns, right? That's why our unit was really developed in, in the first place. Also, clinicians will stress that a TGNC young person should come out of the closet. They should tell people who they are. They will feel better. They, they'll live their authentic self but they don't assess the risk that they could be putting the TGNC person in um, if they say they should just come out, right? So 
if a young person is wanting to come out, uh, it's important to explore what that looks like and even develop a coming out plan. Um, if you Google HRC, which is the Human Rights Campaign Coming Out Plan, I think there's a down free downloadable PDF about um, uh, like a coming out um, resource. And in, in that resource is um, how to do a coming out plan that's, that I really, really like. So um, that could be a good use to you. Also, clinicians fail to assess the impact of internalized transphobia. Um, and if internalized transphobia is coming out of our clients, what do we do with that? I think that's a big problem. Um, and internalized transphobia is when a TGNC person begins to believe really these these messages that they're unlovable, that they'll never be a real boy, a real girl. Um, and, and that becomes, you know, part of their core belief. And um, I, I worked with a young person once who um, had a lot of anxiety around um, getting a job. And they were 17, so they're about to enter the job market and, and said, I don't think I'll ever find a job because my employer will find out I'm trans and won't want to hire me. So these things are very real for a lot of TGNC people and can cause a lot of distress. Um, so that's just a little bit of the background of what we're working with here. We're working with the underserved community. It's been inappropriately served and can face a lot of psychosocial stressors, right? So we knew that our hospital had to be doing something different. Yes, we were seeing TGNC adolescents all the time. We, they, come, they are always in our hospital. But were we treating them appropriately in the most affirming way? So that, that caused our hospital leadership to really take a step back and say, how could we be serving this population differently, more appropriately? So what we did is we, um, we knew we wanted to create some LGBTQ unit or programming. We, we just weren't sure what direction to go. So we thought, let's survey um, TGNC people between the, um, who had an inpatient hospitalization, psychiatric hospitalization, between the ages of 13 and 24. And let's figure out what their experience was like. And let's ask them what they think about an LGBTQ unit. So um, here's some of their responses. So the question was, what was your experience in inpatient psych care? One person said, I did not feel affirmed. They defaulted to using my birth name. No one asked what pronouns I want used. No one remembered my pronouns. Doctors asked in detail how I had sex. It was dehumanizing. Staff ignored my, my gender identity. They didn't care to figure out if my gender identity was at all related to why I was there. Casual homophobia and transphobic jokes were common. Staff attempted to admit me to a female ward. A, a nurse told me I will never truly be a man. Uh, and the last person wrote, um, they contacted my parents, whom I do not speak to, partially due to my identity, and let them lead the way with all matters regarding, uh, regarding me and including how I was to be addressed. So, you know, this is a, a small sample, um, but if you just Google TGNC people in patient psychiatric care, there are numerous articles out there that have been published that just show how awful psychiatry is at pr providing affirming and competent care. And unfortunately, there are stories out there of young people who have had an experience that's been dehumanizing, right, to use this person's language, who then go on to complete their suicide. So it's truly a horrific um model. It's a horrific model that we have in the United States of, of how to competently in an affirming way care for some of the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society. Um, so we asked them also, 
How would an LGBTQ unit succeed? Here's what they said. Hire LGBTQ staff. This is something that came up all the time. I, I, we probably had 10 to 15 responses saying, hire queer and trans staff, please. So that, that tells you something, right? That, that they think that queer and trans people will have a better understanding of how to treat them, how to care for them. I mean, that's not always the case. There are, I'm sure, many straight cisgender clinicians who are listening right now who know how to do this work, right? So, but queer and trans people trust other queer and trans people just innately and instinctively. Um, they also said, diligently educate all, in caps, um, on uh, the unit staff on LGBTQ issues, particularly discrimination against LGBTQ people in mental health settings, in appropriate language and terms. Prospective staff should be screened for homophobic or transphobic views that they hold that could traumatize or disrupt the care of patients. And I'll, I'll share with you a little bit later how we've used, um, how, how these answers have informed our policies at the hospital. Another person said, try to be as gender neutral as possible. Do not separate groups by, quote, sex. Don't ask people what their pronouns are if you're just going to disregard them. Do train people thoroughly. Do use patients' pronouns, including gender-neutral pronouns. Do use patients' chosen names. Do not assume LGBT competency is enough. Do not segregate by gender. Also, someone wrote, um, I think that there would have to be a level of care in planning and programming that is maybe not had elsewhere. There needs to be a hyper-focus on identity inclusion and language. Groups and activities tailored to affirming LGBTQ identities would be really fun and an interesting aspect to develop and lead. I think it would be necessary um, to staff the unit with as many LGBTQ people identified as possible. Another do would be allowing patients to self-identify and allow fluidity in their presentations and identities. Maybe at morning groups, have each person say their name and pronouns, if verbal. This will allow them to, to take charge of their identity and do what's most comfortable for them, even if it changes day to day. So, we took all of that data, um, that qualitative data, and it has informed our policy. So, what we've done... Um, implementing best practices. So this is this is what we've done here at the hospital. We have um, included in our patient non-discrimination policies sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. We've also included those three um, in our employee non-discrimination policy because if our hospital is going to, you know, we hope, lead the way in inpatient LGBTQ care, it's not just our patients, right? We're going to have LGBTQ employees. In fact, we've, we have LGBTQ employees in our hospital. So we have to look not only at patient care, but how do we provide a positive, safe work environment for our employees? Um, another um, best practice that we've implemented in our policy is permission to document. Some TGNC youth are out, they're open, they want us to document using their name and pronoun. Notice I didn't say preferred name and preferred pronoun. That was, using the word preferred was a thing we used to do like seven years ago. Um, we would say, what are your PGPs, or preferred gender pronouns? Preferred isn't used anymore. It's just, what is your name and pronoun? Preference means something else, right? Um, we just want to honor someone's name and pronoun. So, um, But other young people are not out and open. And so for us to use their name and pronoun throughout their charts or in their chart and through notes, uh, might out them. Um, at our hospital, um, like probably many others, a family can request 
the medical records when a patient's discharged, right? So in the record, if a, if a guardian is reading that their kid is trans and using they, them pronouns throughout, and the, and the young person is not out to their family, we could be putting that person, the, the young person in, in danger, right? So we always need that permission to document. Um, affirming visitation policy is something that we um, have implemented at our hospital. So many hospitals out there, um, their visitation policies are very conservative and traditional, um, especially with young people. So if a young person's hospitalized, it's like the family is mom and dad and like siblings. But maybe our patients have same-sex parents or maybe their mom and dad um, have rejected them um, and their real mom is someone else, maybe an aunt or an uncle. Um, our policy now allows for really the patient to decide who is family um, uh, you know, within reason, because, you know, obviously young people, um, if they are a minor and they're, um, uh, not, you know, a youth in care, um, their medical decisions are made by their guardian, right? So I think it's a fine line to walk, but, uh, allowing affirming people into young, um, to come visit the patient, I think is, is great best practice. Roommates. Um, so here's the here's one of the trickiest things that we've in, that we've uncovered throughout this whole experience is what do we do with um, roommates of different sex? At our hospital, like many others, we have a male unit and a female unit, right? We we have segregated the adolescent units by sex. But on our Polaris unit, it's a gender-neutral space, right? Um, by design. That's what our patients are asking for us. So what we've um, decided to do is center the TGNC person in the middle of our roommate policy. Basically, our policy says that um, we go with whatever the young person feels most comfortable. If a TGNC person wants a roommate or wants a room by themselves, that's where they're going to feel most safe and most comfortable. That's what we do. If they want, um, if say this per young person um, was assigned, you know, male at birth, but identifies as female, maybe a trans female, and she wants another female roommate, that's what we're going to do. Um, because it's making sure they feel safe and comfortable. Um, what we found through our research and um, contacting uh, various uh, legal agencies is that putting a TGNC person in a room by themselves just because they are TGNC is discriminatory. Um, so obviously we don't want that to happen. We, want, we don't want to be sued. We, we want a young person to feel respected and safe. So whatever roommate combination we can make, um, uh, we um, to make sure the young person feels safe, we do. However, I will say is that um, if any of you listening work on an inpatient psych unit and are involved with roommates and assigning roommates, know that sometimes the most appropriate roommates, um, or rather the the roommates that you would think would be the best room together sometimes aren't. Um, so for instance, we had two trans girls with us uh, on our unit who really, really, really wanted to room together. Um, but as a clinical team, we got together and said, you know what, if, you know, um, these two girls sleep together, they're going to keep the entire unit up all night long, you know, because they were just, together they were so much energy and, and rather obnoxious. So we felt from a clinical perspective that these two could not room together um, because it would have just caused a lot of um, disruption on the unit. So we, we separated them. And in fact, you know, young people are only in their room just to sleep so they could hang out, you know, other times during the day.
Um, but yeah, I think finding a, a, a roommate situation that works, that's clinically appropriate, but centers the TGNC person in the middle is really the best um, best practice. Um, and it's going to could potentially save a hospital some legal headache um, if we're just assigning TGNC people to a room by themselves. Um, if a TGNC patient requires supervision, maybe a one-to-one aid, I think it's important to ask the patient, what is your preferred, what is the preferred gender of your one-to-one aid? Do you want a female person, a male person? You know, if they're wanting a, a TGNC staff member, if we have that, we can provide that. So I think going off of that, it's important as well. Um, one thing that we cannot do is out a TGNC person to other um, other patients and their families. Um, so, you know, we can't call up a roommate's parents and say, hey, is it okay if your child rooms with a trans person? No, because it outs the trans person. They have a right to privacy. Um, so, you know, that that's something also to think about. You know, that's, and it's a, and if we're outing people, that's a HIPAA violation, right? So we want to protect their privacy as much as possible. Now, on an LGBTQ unit, the kids talk. So everyone knows their identity. Everyone knows who's gay, who's queer, who's trans, whatever. Everyone knows that already. So they can disclose it themselves, but we cannot do that at the hospital. A few things um, about language. Um, names and pronouns. So I, I can't underscore enough how important it is to use the language of your patient. If they are telling you that they use they, them pronouns, and that their name is Sam, and those pronouns are not what you assume them to be, and Sam is not their legal name, we need to respect and honor that. There was a great study that came out last year that said that adults who affirm, honor, you know, use the name and pronoun of a TGNC person reduces risk. Reduces risk for suicide, depression, anxiety. To me, it makes perfect sense. But now we have some good data behind that. And that research really has informed our policy. Because think about it. Young people are coming to us usually at their most vulnerable. You know, they are in psychiatric distress. So why would we want to increase their distress with not respecting their name and pronoun? It just doesn't make sense. Our hospital is a healing um, space, our job to reduce risk, right? So we have to use um, the name and pronoun of our patients. Uh, it's, I think, the most important thing we, we can do. It's how TGNC people know that we are safe. And you know what? We're going to mess up. I do it all the time. Um, it's been less frequent because I've been doing this for nine plus years, but if you haven't already misgendered someone accident on, on accident, you will. And that's okay. Just apologize, ask for clarification, and then move on and practice, practice. Maybe you're visualizing this person in your head and you're just using these pronouns um, over and over and over and over again. Or recite it in your car. I don't know what, what you need to do, but that's your job is to get it right. Um, oftentimes... At our hospital, I'll hear our staff say, well, it's not a link. It's not legally their name. It doesn't matter, right? At our hospital, we have paper charts. I know we're, we're kind of old school, but we're headed towards electronic medical record system, hopefully in the next um, you know, short time. So if you're working with a young person and you have paper charts, we have to have a, um, a sticker, a little, a little label that goes on their upper right-hand corner of every single piece of paper that's in the chart. That piece of paper has to have the patient's legal name, 
that's reflected on their insurance card. And oftentimes, our patients are coming to us in a state of flux, transition. Maybe they're wanting a legal name change in the future, but they're not there yet. That sticker has to have their legal name. Okay? But throughout documentation, I'm going to use the patient's chosen name. So on our forms, we have areas that say um, legal name and then chosen name if different, right? So we, we can separate that out a little bit. And then if a young person wants us to document in that way, we'll use their chosen name throughout um, the process. But I tell them that, hey, this little sticker, that's the only place in this medical record that will have your legal name on it. It's, it's your dead name, right? A lot of TGNC people refer, um, refer it as their dead name. So um, we will, uh, of course, kind of go by that. So it's kind of just becoming a pronoun pro. Uh, it's, it's just important to do that. Um, I know I'm kind of hitting this point hard about name, names and pronouns language, but it's so important. Um, um, use a neutral they, them pronoun until you know the patient's pronoun. So if you're interacting with a patient and you need to use a pronoun to refer to them and you don't know their pronoun, use they or them. Oh, that's their water bottle. They left it there. Oh, that's their piece of paper. Or their room is around the corner. You know, or just ask the patient, hey, um, I know you're new here. My pronouns are he, him, and his. What are your pronouns? And if the patient wants to to tell you their pronouns, they can do that, and you can then use their pronouns appropriately. But I tend to always default to a neutral they/them when talking to anyone, not just at the hospital, but in my entire life, I've switched because I don't know. I I can't assume someone's pronouns just based off of what my eyes, my brain thinks it is, because we're all conditioned socially, culturally to assume a lot about someone by what we think is between their legs, right? And that's, that's not an affirming, competent place to operate from if we're working with this community. Um, another th- last point I'm going to make here about this is what do we do then if a patient is telling us... Um, you know, when you are talking with me, you know, use Johnny and he, him pronouns. But when you are talking with mom or dad or grandma, whoever is the guardian on the phone, you have to use Sarah and she and her pronouns. That's an important piece of information to know. Um, and it's your job to honor that. Um, and it's, it's tricky, um, especially when you're in maybe a family session together and the patient saying, hey, I need you to back me up, use my name and pronoun when you're talking about me or to me, you know, but when you're talking with mom, you need to flip. So it's really whatever the, the TGNC patient is wanting, that's how we need to communicate with their family members. Um, if the patient says, you know what, use you know, my chosen name and pronoun with mom uh, because she. I just want her to continue hearing it. I want um, mom to see a mental health professional using my name and pronoun. You know, it's good for mom to keep hearing that. Um, I will use it um, in my communication with the family. Even if mom or dad, whoever is fumbling with pronouns, I... I'm using what the patient is wanting me to use. I think that's very important. All right, something, some more best practices around intake. So your forms, if they haven't been addressed already, need to be changed. Your assessment forms, your intake forms, psychosocial assessments, physical forms, I mean, whatever they are, they need to be more inclusive. So, like I said before, do you have a name or a space for chosen name, um, legal name, sexual orientation, gender identity? Um, when we were looking at our nursing assessment, um, there was a section 
on um, reproductive health. And before I came on board, it said women's reproductive health issues and then men's reproductive health issues. So as they're doing their screening, they say, you know, they look at a patient, they would assume they're a female, and they would say, do you have any lumps in your breast? And they would bypass all the questions around um, uh, the reproductive health around men. So we've done away with that because it's just not appropriate for our um, GNC people. So our director of nursing was really brilliant, and um, she... Um, just remove the gender language. It just says reproductive health issues. So everyone's asked these questions. Um, also, our patients have a medical ID band that they wear around their wrists, right? Pretty standard for hospitals. Um, that ID band, we can change the gender marker and the name for our patient. Um, one patient told us this is the first time that they've ever been hospitalized that said uh, that their ID band said their name um, correctly and it had a correct gender marker. Um, if you have any kind of signage or brochures or any pictures in your admission packets or even just in your lobby area, I would make it much more gender neutral, maybe have diverse families. Um, I think that's important. Also, at our hospital, on our, our ID badge, we have... Um, a sticker that employees can put on their badge. One's like a little rainbow flag sticker, and one is the trans pride flag sticker. Now, you have to go through an orientation with me first um, on kind of LGBTQ 101 affirming care um, to get to wear those stickers, and they are optional. So it's another important thing to um, think about is our interactions with our patients' families. Now, I was observing what an intake at our hospital right when I first started, and the intake clinician got information about the patient that said, mom's name is Diana. You know, that, that's not really her name, but, you know, we'll use that for, for this um, example. And so the clinician called up Diana and said, hey, Diana, I'm going to ask you some questions about your child um, as we're doing this intake um, admission. And then one of the questions the intake clinician asked is, so mom, um, where's dad? So that's an issue, right? If Diana could be in a lesbian relationship, she could have been artificially inseminated, and there is no father, right? So again, the avoiding assumptions, not is not, it's not only about our patients, but it's about the entire world. And in fact, if you start doing this work, you're going to notice it's going to bleed into all aspects of your life, which I think is a much healthier and appropriate way to live um, than constantly assuming that we know things about people. Um, I think it's important to, when you're thinking about assessments, be aware of the unique psychosocial stressors um, because there are unique um, instances where we need to assess differently when we are working with TGNC people. And I think a really great measure that's been um, created is from um, University of Southern California, Dr. Jeremy Goldbach, and his team created a measure called the SMASI, which is the Sexual Minority Adolescent Stress Inventory. It's about a 64, 65 item question that assesses um, the level of stress an LGBTQ person has faced um, currently in the and in the past 30 days. So every young person that comes to us who tells us that they are, you know, having stress around their identities, we give them this measure and it gives us a good snapshot of, of um, you know, what's been going on. It's a free measure. If you just Google USC um, SMASI, S-M-A-S-I, you should be able to find the measure and download it for free. But, you know, when assessing uh, TGNC folks, I think it's important to think about some of these um, uh, categories. So for biological, um, are they on hormone replacement therapy? Or are they hoping to do that in the future? 
have they had any kind of gender confirmation surgery or are they wanting to do that in the future? Are they pregnant? Uh, and remember if, uh, to ask our trans guys and non-binary people if they're pregnant too. Um, are about you need to be asking about their sexual health um, and see if they're at risk for HIV. And we know that uh, particularly trans women, uh, trans women of color in particular, are very high risk for HIV. We're asking about fertility options. So if they, you know, in the future want to transition, we need to be talking about well. There are some things uh, around fertility preservation that a uh, young person will need to consider and explore in the future. Um, and if they are at risk for HIV, are we giving a recommendation for a PrEP, um, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, and the brand is called Truvada. And if they are, we provide you know, resources to um, locally for that. For psychological um, domains, we, we look around their emotions, any kind of trauma they've experienced, gender-based trauma, microaggressions, um, their body image, body dysphoria, how resilient they are, what their self-efficacy is like in any internalized transphobia. For social and cultural, uh, look at their religious beliefs or their religious upbringing and see how that's affected them. Uh, if they've experienced any kind of heterosexism, transphobia, racism, how their culture has impacted their gender, their family structure, housing, and employment. Um, interpersonal is, you know, any kind of relational issues or attachment, fear of intimacy, lack of affirming relationships, uh, I think it's important to look at as well. So I've been saying a lot about... Um, utilizing an affirming care model throughout this whole podcast. So I'm going to tell you a little about what that is. So it's really just an approach to care. It's an approach to therapy. It's an approach to nursing. It's an approach to psychiatry, whatever your profession is, that really embraces a positive view of LGBTQ identities, their relationships, and addresses the negative influences that homophobia, transphobia, and heterosexism has on the lives of LGBT people. And affirming care says that it's our job to assist young people as they face challenges that stem from living in an invalidating environment. Affirming practitioners validate the emotional experience of all aspects of a person's identity. And I think this is really central, it's, it's a core to this model, is that the belief that LGBTQ people are a natural and normal reflection of the human experience. I tell all new hires at our hospital that if you do not believe that LGBTQ people are a natural and normal reflection of the human experience, that they will be placed elsewhere at the hospital, that they will not be working with our most vulnerable population. You know, our patients deserve our staff members to celebrate who they are, to nurture who they are, not um, shame. Um, so I think that's a really important. Also, um, practitioners in this model help their patients to transcend restrictive social constructs. So a social construct is gender, right? There's nothing in our biology that says that a, quote, girl has to wear pink. It's passive, right? And the flip side that a boy has to wear blue is aggressive, whatever. Those um, stereotypical um, behaviors. And what we're going to continue to see is young people exploring gender in very unique and interesting and different ways. And that's normal. We, we know that gender diversity uh, is, exists throughout every single culture and for centuries, right? So once we allow, we break down these binary boxes of maleness and femaleness, we allow these young people to transcend them. Um, and I think it's important to do.
Um, also, um, the affirming model is really all about your attitudes, it's about skills, and it's about knowledge. Those are the three kind of central pillars. Um, and the um, University of California, San Francisco, they have some guidelines um, for TGNC affirming mental health care. And they, they have found that there are three general mental health needs of this community. One is exploration of gender identity. The second is coming out and social transition. And the third is just general mental health issues that might not be related to gender dysphoria, right? And so we need to always be thinking about which of these three um, does our, you know, do our patients need from us. When we are looking or treating TGNC people, it's important from an affirming standpoint to incorporate the minority stress model. If you're unfamiliar with this model, um, it's basically what it says at its core is that external stressors around identity create psychopathology. So, you know, to really simplify this model for T, G, and C folks, we have external stressors like discrimination, being rejected by your family and friends, um, for instance, victimization, maybe being shoved into a locker and called really awful names at school, not being affirmed with who they are. Those are minority stress-related external incidents, right? Research shows that that creates internalized stressors, so internalized transphobia, maybe there are negative expectations about the future, um, not disclosing of identity to other people, and that creates some uh, interpersonal factors of not feeling like they belong, feeling like they're a burden, which then can create suicidal ideation. I think minority stress model is great tool to combat the old oppressive psychopathology in the DSM when we said that people who are LGBTQ have a mental disorder, right? This shows us that it's the stress of being a minority that creates psychopathology. So um, I want to talk about some affirming individual interventions that you can do um, as a therapist on an inpatient unit. One is exploration of gender identity, um, exploration of gender expression and gender role. Um, I think we're pretty good as a profession um, of teaching people how to reduce stress. So if you can pinpoint some of these uh, minority stress incidents, I think that's a great place to um, you know explore in therapy. Reducing internalized transphobia and CBT really works great with that um, and those kind of thought distortions. Um, connecting to peer and social supports, um, referral to hormone replacement therapy, or any kind of gender-affirming medical providers uh, I think is important for us to do, improving body image, enhancing resilience, help with the coming out process, um, and provide psychoeducation and um, local resources. If you're going to do this work, you're going to have to be armed with how to talk about TG and C people, right? Because family members are going to ask you, well, you know, my child wants to transition. What is that? Or they're really curious about puberty blockers. What is that? So you have to educate yourself. And hopefully this is one step towards doing that. Some affirming family interventions um, are um, the Family Acceptance Project. And they're helping families to support their LGBT child. The multi-dimensional family approach to gender non-conforming families and the attachment-based family therapy for suicidal, lesbian, gay, bisexual adolescents. And if you um, are, you know, if you've, if you've liked what I've talked about today, um, there's a another podcast on LGBTQ family work that really goes in depth on each of these interventions um, and kind of helps. Um, helps you become knowledgeable on how to do this family work. I think it's important, especially on an inpatient basis. Um, some affirming group interventions. 
Um, some of our groups at our hospital are identity-based. We talk about what's it like as a TGNC person who faces discrimination, family issues, bullying, trauma, hopelessness. Um, if you're using existing curriculum, which is fine, we, we do that too, is that curriculum, you know, the content of that, is it reflected in TGNC identities, right? Are there diverse um, relationships, uh, scenarios, or, um, or whatnot? I think that's important. Um, some other recommendations for nursing, um, if you have to do body checks. I mean, I think it's uncomfortable for anyone to remove articles of clothing and being naked in front of a complete stranger because, unfortunately, that's something that we have to do in inpatient care is to make sure that that person isn't bringing anything that can be danger, a danger to themselves or others. But allowing our TGNC people to remove one article of clothing at a time um, so they're not exposed to a stranger because oftentimes um, folks in this community have a lot of body issues, uh, body um, dysphoria, right? Um, if a young person is coming to us and they bind their chest to make their chest flat, we will allow a young person to continue wearing their binder if it's not uh, a danger to themselves or potentially to other people. And in fact, we've had a number of young people that we say, yeah, your binder is fine, um, you know, continue wearing it. We've actually told some other folks um, who don't have a binder that they can maybe double up on a sports bra. Um, in fact, we've had one trans girl pad her sports bra so um, to make a visible appearance of breasts. That's that's fine with us. If it's just toilet paper. You know, we always are thinking of safety. Um, also, since kids are staying, you know, overnight with us, they could be on their menstrual cycle. And if this is a trans guy, perhaps, who is on their cycle, you know, that can be distressing. So how can we, as a staff, make sure that we are... Um, providing really good care uh, and are sensitive to those needs. If you are working at a hospital and you want to do this work, I really recommend applying for the Human Rights Campaign Healthcare Equality Index. It will um, help you become a, an affirming, competent provider. It, helps, it will help you um, throughout that process because it's going to give you recommendations um, to implement as you're applying for um, for this survey. And in fact, we just rewarded um, a top performer um, in the Health Care Equality Index, and I believe we're going to be looking into um, resubmitting for the 2020 survey. So that's something also to, to look out for. But maybe hang a rainbow flag outside your hospital. Maybe do something fun for your staff. Maybe end the patients for Pride Month in June. Um, we have a community advisory board that helps um, our program. So uh, it helps guide kind of our vision. So we've had some really, and we'll end with this, some great patient feedback. Some patients have said, I like Polaris and that it has groups for the LGBTQ community. It showed me that, that there are other people like me. It showed me not to be ashamed, but to be proud of who I am. Another person wrote, I felt safer than being on a male or female unit only. No one bullied me here. Polaris Culture welcomes you and everyone is greeted with respect and kindness. Um, a trans guy wrote, I felt accepted here as the boy I really am. Someone wrote, um, everyone respected my pronouns. The groups were really focused on my needs. We were like family. And another person wrote, I liked how there were LGBTQ staff. So that concludes my podcast today. Um, if you work in a hospital setting, you know, I really encourage you to implement some of the things I've talked about today. Uh, I encourage you to reach out. Um, if you'd like to talk with me, you can always go to garfieldparkhospital.com um, and contact contact me through that. Um, but, you know, this, this population really needs um, appropriate, affirming, competent care. And right now we're just, we're just not seeing it. And so I'm hoping... I'm hoping that this um, podcast today will give you some tools um, that you can um, use in your um, professional setting because this, this community needs to be treated in a way that celebrates and nurtures who they are, especially if they are 
in an inpatient psych unit, which is horrific anyways, right? Um, I don't know if we've really figured out how to, you know, in the most appropriate way, have anyone in an inpatient unit. It's really restrictive, right? But it's what we've got right now, and we have to do better with our LGBTQ young people, especially our TG and C um, patients. So um, I wish you all the best in your uh, endeavors, and continue educating yourself, uh, continue seeking training on um, TG and C folks so you can be the best you know, the most affirming and competent provider. Thanks a lot. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.